Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Awesome. Hey, let me pray for us real quick as we uh, dive in this morning. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being you, for being here, for being a God of redemption. God, I thank you that um, you consistently seek us and pursue us, um, that you give us opportunities uh, to be made right and to be made whole, and that uh, all you ask is for us to come to you. And so we do that this morning. We ask that you meet us here. God, re- reveal in our own hearts what it is we need to uh, be rid of, and uh, God, reveal to us what it is that you're calling us to. Uh, thank you for this place. Thank you for all you're doing. Uh, Lord, we are so excited, and um, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. Everyone doing all right? Getting there? Okay, well, my name is Sean, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Trailside, and so we're so excited to have you guys with us. Real quick, before uh, we dive in too much, I want to tell you about two quick things that are happening that are really exciting. Next week is our Growth Track 2.0, so if you've been through 1.0 with us, um, we invite you to come to our 2.0. It's about an hour right after church. We'll feed you just as normal, but it's kind of the final step. Uh, to walk into membership with us or covenant relationship, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. We have terms for everything here. I mess them up sometimes, but uh, we'd love for you to do that. You can sign up on the app or you can email Deshaun, I'm S-E-A-N, which is the proper way to spell it. And if you want to fight me on that, we can do that. But um, S-E-A-N at trailside.church. Very, very simple. So um, anyway, we're wrapping up. Oh, the second thing, I only told you one. The second thing is that we are having celebration service next week. Uh, we are baptizing, actually, two students, two high school students for the very first time. Um, we're going to have students baptized here, which is awesome. Um, yeah, we should celebrate that because that's really good. Um, yeah, our student ministry launched like, what, a month, two months ago, formally? Um, and we have two high school girls who are going to be baptized next week. And that is just like the coolest thing. Uh, it speaks to my youth pastor heart of where I started in my own ministry. And so uh, we're really excited about that. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, so Leo, be ready. And um, uh, sorry, we have a joke. You're going to hear more about Leo here in a little while. We have a joke that every time we have Lord's Supper, he's never here. And so um, we'll see if we can break that trend uh, next week for you. But uh, we're going to celebrate next week. We're going to start a new series, and it's just going to be really, really good. So I hope that you'll uh, make it out to that. Um, But today we're wrapping up our series, No Perfect People. Uh, with uh, a pretty incredible story of these folks right up here who we'll get to in a little while. But um, the whole goal of this series was to to walk through and to demonstrate what church, I think, actually should look like. Um, You know, we've had this idea that um, in order to be a Christian or in order to follow Jesus, like everything's kind of perfect all the time. You guys ever felt that, that kind of friction, I guess, in church? I know I have. Um... I may look like everything is just perfectly together all the time, and I understand that. I don't want to be a stumbling block to you, but um, here it is. Okay. I just got to see if we're awake this morning. Um, but we took the last five weeks, and we talked about that. Like, It's okay to come to church and to be a part of a community and not have everything together. It's okay to you know, show vulnerability. And we've talked everything from uh, you know, Riley Taylor, our worship leader, spoke to kick off the series about um, what it looks like when you have pain and doubt and you don't know what your theology is and if that's okay for you to work through those things. And um, Josh Bradford, who is a pastor's kid growing up, you know, he shared about uh, what happens when the church is kind of done with you 
Because I know there's people who feel like maybe the church has been done with them before. And that's a really painful thing. And it's hard. Or our friends Nathan and Catherine who walked through a huge medical crisis just a few months ago. What it means when, when God is meeting you in the midst of that of doubt and of not knowing anything and of having nothing to lay your hands on except fear. And then last week we talked about the Jones family from pagan to pastor. That's what I like to tell Marcus all the time. If you don't know, Marcus actually is going to be preaching here in a couple months. Marcus, who we talked about and had the video last week, is a pastoral resident in training here at Trailside. Um, Literally is in seminary, and splits his time of seminary and being here and just letting me work him like a dog um, to get as much done as possible. Uh, but uh, th- that's what redemption looks like. And today we're going we're gonna to share a story that talks about perseverance in the midst of incredible loss and trial. So the question for us today, what does that look like when life is really hard? What, is it, what does it look like when you are walking through things or you have people who are walking through things around you and you know that there's no good Christian answer you can give them. I had a a teacher pass away when I was in Charleston. Um, I was a youth pastor, student pastor, um, and the main school that we hung out with, this teacher, she was, I think, like 41 and just didn't wake up one morning. Just really, really rough. She had only taught at that one Christian school her whole career, and so I got a call. I was on vacation, actually, which is hilarious because I think it was my second day of vacation total ever in ministry. And um, I get this call from the, the pastor. He said, hey, I need you to go uh, to the school, St. John's, which is actually where Mikey graduated from, um, in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, um, the huge town of Monk's Corner. And uh, he said, I-, I know you're on vacation. I need you to come home and go to the school. This teacher passed away. And I was like, okay, I don't even know what to, how to handle this. Like, what do you tell a bunch of high school students um, in the midst of this terrible tragedy. And so I had decided I was going to go because I knew other pastors were going to be there and I was just going to be the fly on the wall. And I was going to listen and watch what those guys did and try to just learn from them. And I'll never forget there was a guy who'd been, he's actually still in ministry down amongst corner and has been forever. Um, he was a little older on the scale of student ministry. He was like 52 or 53. So a, a seasoned veteran. And this one student was just lost, just falling apart. And I'll never forget, he, he looked at her and he said, hey, listen, here's what you need to know. God is still good. That was it. God is still good. And I remember thinking, I was like, okay, everything I've ever trained in was like, well, no, what you need to do is have a theological perspective of life and death, share heaven and the promise of heaven, and then walk the person in through that so they know. Like, that, that wasn't it at all. In the middle of what actually needed to happen, the guy looked at her and she just he said, hey, God is still good. That was it. And I thought, number one, I have a lot to learn. <clears throat> and number two, he's right. In the midst of just loss, of devastation, the answer is not to have a deep understanding of theology. Sometimes it's just to know like God is still good. And I would even say maybe that statement is a demonstration of deep theology. Maybe that's good enough. Maybe when you're walking through things that you never prepared yourself for, the real answer, the right thing is just to know, hey, God is still good. And that that is the only depth of theology you need to have. I've got a friend who wrote an entire book. He's 
super smart. He's like a double doctorate out in Seattle. He's just, he's ridiculous as a person. But he wrote a book, and the whole thing was based on the children's song of Jesus Loves Me. And it literally is, Jesus loves me, this I know. And he tells the whole song, and he, it's a new believer's guide. And they've sold hundreds of thousands of copies because I think people don't need super deep theology. They just need to understand that God is still good. And so as we wrap up this series, the point of this series is, is because we, I, what we want to share with you are that there are people sitting next to you and around you who, who have real stories of real life, and when a real gospel hits those stories, real things happen. Real life change happens. Real hope happens. Real community happens. Because I, I think the greatest lie that we've allowed churches to teach today, and that you'll probably see of many churches kind of around, because it's becoming more and more popular, unfortunately, um, is that God is demonstrating himself to you so that you can be victorious in all things. Like We allow Scripture to be taught in a way that says, like, hey, uh, God has, has given you the sword, and you're going to go and slay your giant. And I'm like, man, that's not accurate. <laughs> but we've made God about serving us and making us vic victorious in all things instead of saying, like, what God wants for you is for you to follow him because he will not leave you or forsake you. And it's his victory. And we've allowed this very, like, egocentric, man-driven kind of gospel to permeate through every part of our lives. And then what happens when tragedy strikes, when things are hard, you know what we do? We, we try to give up. And we say, like, well, God must not love me because this bad thing happened. But the, the real depth of theology is that God is still good. That's it. That is your depth of, when you go on Facebook today and you're like, man, went to church and this pastor, like, so good looking, and he dropped this, um, <laughs> he dropped this term, God is still good. Like, that, that's all the theology you need. Because it speaks to everything else. Because what about when life isn't good? Like, if we allow that to be our theology, what we think of God, what about when life is really hard? What about when things happen to you, you feel like you don't deserve? What about when mental illness strikes and you find your family in the midst of tragedy? What about when your plan isn't going to fruition because something happened, because someone aggressed you that you didn't deserve, and yet... There you are found, and your answer should still be, God is still good. How do you do that when your theology is built around if you're having a really good day or not? Because what happens when you're not? What happens to your perceived faith when the things that you've always believed would never happen to you as long as you pray enough, as long as you read your Bible enough, and as long as you, know, you don't like flip the guy off on Woodruff Road, taking forever to turn into Costco? What happens when those bad things do indeed hit your life? When you don't deserve it? See, our, our typical response, and I, guys, listen, I, even, I saw this on Facebook this week. I saw a guy responding to someone who's a friend of mine, and his response was like, I tried God and things didn't happen like I thought they would, so it just didn't work. Like, what, what if... What if what God is trying to teach us in hardship and in trial and in struggle isn't to determine if he loves you enough? What if it is 
that we're supposed to pray and seek Jesus and that the result isn't that God is supposed to fix things, but that you're supposed to change. Like, what if you're supposed to do things differently? What if the outcome of prayer isn't so that you get what you want, but so that God makes you more like Jesus? So God makes you more like himself. And that that attitude, that renewed heart, that change, facilitates all these things, like being able to say, hey, God is still good. What, what if that was your theology? What if it wasn't that we have to come to church and get really excited and talk about how God is going to take care of all the things you need? What if all that God is trying to do is teach you all you need is him? What, is that, what does that change? See, we're really good, guys, at putting walls up and being insulated and safe. And, and I don't think that the Lord is calling us to safety and security. I said this before, and I stole it from somewhere, so please know that. Like, the answer is not to build higher fences. It's to build longer tables. It's not to be safe. In fact, one thing, I love to make fun of people because I'm just a terrible person, and so deal with it, right? But one of my most favorite things to make fun of is, um, is bad theology, or what I call like white girl theology. Okay? It's all right. All, some of my favorite college white girls are here, so they know it's okay. Um, this verse in Jeremiah, maybe you've heard of it. Anybody heard Jeremiah 29.11? Seen it on a t-shirt, coffee mug, has a poster in their hall. Their grandma texted them and said, don't worry, honey, you're going to get an A on the test because God knows the plans he has for you to prosper you, not to harm you. It's one of my most favorite things to make fun of because it's so... It's so um, conducive to our American theology. We quote one verse. Here's what I want to know. If you've ever quoted Jeremiah 29, 11, have you ever quoted any other verse out of the book of Jeremiah to anyone? That's my main question. Probably not, because you're not going to walk up and be like, here's what the Lord says. Destruction is coming upon you. <laughs> right? man, mom, I'm really struggling. Um, I don't know what to do in class. Well, here's what the Lord says. Destruction is coming. Enjoy that one as you take your math test today. No one ever quotes that. Like you're not putting that on a coffee mug and walking in on a Monday being like, another Monday. Lord promises destruction. This place will burn when I'm done with it. Right? No one does that. But we have this very egocentric theology that says that God is going to prosper you, make plans for you. His plan is to prosper you, not to harm you. It's for good. But here's what we miss. Have you ever read verse 10? Uh, let me read it to you. Because here's what's happening. God's people are in exile under their absolute bitter rival and enemy. This is what, what God says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Like, so here's what that verse says. God says to his people, hey, you're going to be uh, enslaved here for 70 more years. And then I'm going to come visit you. Check in on you. Say hello. See what's happening. But, but don't fret 
because I have my, a plan for you, and it's not forever. This, this thing that you're going through is not forever. See, no one wants to quote that. No one wants to say, hey, you might be in exile for 70 years, and, but I'm, I'm going to come eventually and show you that I haven't forgotten you. But see, what we've done is we've allowed this theology to be about our good, not God's good. The goodness of God's deliverance in Jeremiah for his people is not that it doesn't exist. It's that his plan is that they have to suffer for a long time first. Now imagine being, I don't know, let's see, back in those days, average life expectancy was either 970 or it was 12. So um, depending on where you're at, I guess, in the story. But, But imagine that that promise isn't for you. Imagine hearing, hearing the Lord speak this and knowing that you're not going to outlive the 70 years, that the rest of your days are in exile. The rest of your days are in slavery. The rest of your days are not promised to be good. The, the answer to the story and the hope that God has for you is not that he's going to take this, this thing, this event that you're in and fix it right now. It's that the end game, no matter what it is, is that he has a promise stored up for you and it's in eternity in heaven with him. And it's not, it doesn't matter if you're in exile here or not. But church, that's what we've allowed to inhabit our worship. It's songs about our victory. And then we just kind of get God's good and sprinkle it in there like it's the top of a cake. The main problem with the systems of belief like that is that we, <coughs> excuse me, is that when we're the triumphant warrior, the victor, and it's not God, it makes him a magician for us. And and I just don't think that's what God promises. And in fact, if, if God spoke to you and said, in the midst of your deepest trial, and said, hey, I have plans for you, for your good, to take care of you, for your welfare, but they don't include the thing that you think I need to do. In fact, what it includes is a long time of suffering. Would you be okay with that? If God said, what I promise you is me, but in the meantime, you're going to have to really walk through some stuff. Are, are, are you willing to be okay with that? It's a common question. Do we want heaven if Jesus isn't there? And I think... The way that we've been walking through and the way that America is moving in its theology is the answer is easy. No, I just want heaven. doesn't matter to me if Jesus isn't there. See, our faith is measured in how protected God has made our life rather than how unflinchingly perfect he is in every moment of pain and doubt that you experience. We have no issue with the statement, God has a plan for our lives, right? Everyone, you hear that and you're like, absolutely. Put it on a poster. Put it on a coffee mug. Put it on a shirt. Put it on a journal. Put it on the front of my Bible because that's what matters first. We have no issue with that statement. We want God to have a plan for us. But what if the plan includes something that is immensely hard and that will absolutely wreck you down to the studs so that your studs can know that it's about Jesus and then God builds everything up around you? Are we okay with that plan? I don't know. 
I don't know if we are, but you know what? There are people who won't come and won't walk into a church or won't hear about Jesus because we've allowed that to be the main basis of their faith. Like God has a plan for you, and it's to never hurt, to never struggle, to have all that you need, to be really happy, to have a six-pack here and in the fridge, right? Have kids that never yell at you. Have a house that's perfect and clean all the time. Have a spouse that is never upset, that just does your bidding, that loves to be with you because you are so great. Because if God is real, he'll give us that. But that's not what God promises. What God promises, I have a plan for you, and it might include 70 years of exile and pain. But hold on, because God is still good. Because his plan is that he will not leave you in the midst of it. See, we have no issue with the statement, God has a plan, but our faith seems to waver immensely when that plan seems to include pain. But church, what I want to tell you today is that there is pain, there is pain within the promise that God has. In fact, what if a main indicator of God's plan, so that you knew you were where you were supposed to be, was knowing that it included pain. I got news for you. If that wasn't it, none of us would be here because I would have been like, no, nah, man, I'm not doing any of that. Like <laughs> This whole church thing, it sounds great, but money is awesome. Being able to pay bills is great. Like Going on vacation sounds fun. But would that be worth it if there was no pain? If, if only knowing that what God had for our church was when it was really good and really easy, would it be worth being here? I, I, I don't... I, that's, the, that's the struggle. But what if the main indicator of God's plan is that sometimes it hurts and it's not easy? How do you, how do you answer that when life just hits you hard? I, I lived in Charleston for a number of years, which I wouldn't recommend. Right? Like I, I, in fact, when we moved back here, people were like, why would you leave Charleston? I'm like, there's a guy who's never been off of King Street downtown. Right? <laughs> or Folly Beach, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Because you go there and like, it's not that great. I'm just sorry. Like, all my friends down there, I still love them. Um, I, I just don't ever want to be there again. It's cool. Um, but there was one really interesting thing. About three years in, we finally went and had a carriage ride. Have you guys ever been on a carriage ride downtown Charleston? Pretty fun, Yeah feel really, really important. You're riding around and there's people on the streets like, wow. But it smells bad and like it's just not that great. But there was one really cool thing we noticed. Uh, you, could, you can tell the differences in the houses based on two things. Uh, well, the main thing is if it's still standing because of storms. Um, but the second thing is these things called hurricane bars. Anybody ever heard about hurricane bars in the houses? So they literally can date homes and buildings based on these hurricane bars. Because the only buildings that are still alive and still around are the ones that have them. Everything else has been rebuilt. And so what they had was every time these storms, these hurricanes would come in and knock these houses down and knock these buildings down, eventually, eventually engineers said, hey, we can do something about this. Like, maybe we don't have to build houses, wait for a storm to come, wipe them out, and rebuild them. It's a little expensive. And so they took these huge bars of steel. They literally would melt steel down and they kind of stuck it like Lincoln logs in between the floors and on the building and just to hold it together. 
And so they're called hurricane bars. And so they did that so that when the storms came, they learned that they needed to do something to be able to withstand these storms. So you can literally go down King Street, and you can see these huge metal bars that are in the middle of buildings and know that that's what they're there for. Now, I actually did try to find a picture online for you, but you type hurricane bars in Charleston in Google, and it just (laughs) doesn't work really well. After page 18, I was like, it's not worth it. But but I, I wonder if that also isn't the actual purpose of faith. You know, I've seen so many people struggle and be stubborn and be frustrated and never learn. And I almost wonder if maybe that's kind of how faith is supposed to work. Like after the Lord walks you through something and you come out on the other side, it's a measure of you going, hey, look, he's gotten me this far. Like he didn't leave me. So that when the next storm comes, when the next hardship comes, you're like, but wait, we've been through this and he didn't leave me. Maybe that's how faith should come so that when God looks at you and says, hey, I have a plan for you to prosper you, not to harm you for your good, not for for evil, you can go, oh, that's right, because the last time I was absolutely walking through this horrendous, hellacious moment in my life, you never left me. I think that's kind of how faith works. In fact, what if instead of protecting every decision you make, right? Like, consider what that is right now. What if instead of protecting every decision you make, God allows trial, allows tribulation, allows hardship in your life so that the goal is that you can learn to trust him, that he will persevere with you, that he'll walk you through things which you never thought you would be able to get through. Like maybe that's what it's about. See, we get really good, church. We are so good at going to churches and walking in and hiding in the background. We're so good at walking in places and seeing people and being like, hey, everything is awesome. So good. I got my prayer on, got my coffee on. Like, I had a cup earlier, so I'm cool with Jesus right now. But, but maybe that's not what the church should be. Maybe that's not what this is all about at all. Maybe instead what it's about is that when trial comes, when tribulation comes, the goal is to walk with other people and watch their stories and then have them live yours with you so that you'll know that God's plan for you is perseverance and hope in the midst of exile, in the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble. See, what that does is that puts us on, I'm getting ahead of myself, that puts us on mission. That gives us purpose and hope which I'm getting ahead and I've got to shut up because I'm going to mess the whole thing up. What if, what if the thing that you need most is not to walk around like in this aloof sense of knowing your own depravity and hardship and need? What if what you need most is the reminder that you need more, God more than you need the air in your lungs? What would that change? What would it change in this city? If, if we recognize those things. In fact, what happens when our God says he has plans to prosper, but you know it's going to include grief and incredible sacrifice? I was dating a boy, 
and it wasn't him. <laughs> I'm Mallory. And I'm Leo. I met Leo through the guy that I was dating. Um, he brought her to meet me because he was, he was a buddy of mine. Um, and he brought her to meet me. I was at Mepin Abbey, a, a monastery down near Charleston. And um, they came down for her birthday with some friends and I hadn't seen him in a while. So he uh, was bringing her to introduce her to me at the monastery, meet his monk friend, you know. <laughs> Eventually, after four years, I left Mepin Abbey and started going to college Charleston. Um, and we stayed in touch. Um, I ended up moving back to Greenville. They got married, and I moved back to Greenville, and I got married. For various reasons, my marriage fell apart. Um, it was it was certainly not a God-centered marriage. Uh, and then he died, and. Yeah. So I got married at 25 and then I became a widow at 26. He had previously had um, addiction problems, um, but he was very adamant on, you know, that part of his life being over and, you know, he had moved on. We, we thought we had this thing that we both loved and we did. We did love those things and they were taken. But it was because God had something better planned for us. I'm not supposed to cry. <laughs> it's one of those things that uh, in the moment it seemed like this horrific, how could this possibly be my life? Um, how is this the way that things ended up? I had lost a spouse and then she lost a spouse and I lost a friend. And it was like life just kept throwing stuff at, at both of us, yeah. you know? Yeah, I tell everybody, everybody knew Leo as my best friend. So if I was going out with my girlfriends, Leo was always there. If I needed something, he's who I called. He was like my brother, you know? And then, and then I would say stuff like, oh, well, when we're 80, you know, if we're not married again, then We'll we'll be I can't together. Find anybody better. We'll we'll be together because we enjoy each other's company. She went on a train. She went on a, a trip to to Europe with Lily, and um, I didn't take the time to come say goodbye. I was very mad at him for that. And then she got into a a minor train accident. It was terrifying because we were leaving Germany, going into Switzerland, and. So it's, it's only German people on the train. We get into this accident, nobody speaks English. My phone doesn't work, you know, Lily's freaking out, I'm freaking out. Finally, when we got rerouted onto another train, um, I was able to connect to internet. And I remember that I called Leo first and I didn't think twice, I don't know why. And so, but then later I was like, I called Leo before my parents, you know, like, you know, granted, it's like, he's my best friend, but like, I could, we could have died and like, I called him first. And so I was just like, I knew something was going on. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I knew something was going on. There's something more. Yeah. yeah. 
It's weird when your best friend of eight years like starts flirting with you. <laughs> That's weird. It was, it was hard to do. <laughs> be divorced and lose a friend. And at the, at the time when I was going through those things, it didn't seem like this is all for something. It's all for a reason. It's all for a purpose. Um, it's, you know, I was never part of my plan. But my plans are ridiculous. The ba I mean, we have a baby. <laughs> we have the most perfect baby. Well, Willow, my sweet Willow. Willow is the epitome of our relationship. Like, we can't look at her and her all of her perfectness and not know that this is exactly what God wanted for our lives. We just... She's too wonderful and oh my gosh, she looks just like Leo and she makes the same faces as him. And it's like, you know, I, I have like a little miniature version of my best friend and husband, you know? She's a love child. She is the product of two, I don't know. I don't want to say broken people because we're, I mean, I guess we're all a little broken, but she's, Definitely the greatest gift we could have ever asked for. So my favorite like image, um, and I shared this with my small group um, one of these past Wednesdays, is this picture of Jesus and he's pulling a teddy bear out of the hands of a small child. And, and she's saying, Jesus, why are you taking my bear away from me? I love this bear so much. But behind his back, on his other hand, he's got another teddy bear and it's like five times as big. And so I feel like that kind of sums up us. It's like I'm this lumpy clay and God is making me something out of this lumpy clay. And the longer he works with it, he smashes it and reforms it and smashes it and reforms it. It's smoother the lumpy clay and it's being perfected. The life that we have is a, is a gift beyond anything that could possibly By not being perfect, your life is telling a story. It's telling a story of all of your heartaches and your pain and, you know, the experiences you go through, both good and bad, and um, no matter, you know, what life has given you, we're, we're loved by the perfect one, so we don't need to be perfect. Huh? Look at this thing. None? Look at this thing right here. Say, I am. You say it. Say, I am. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Divorce is going to be fine. Death is going to be fine. You know, I, I, you have no idea what I have in store for you. You have no idea. says divorce death like it's going to be fine you're going to be fine like god is going to see you through these things and so you consider the words of paul how how can we say in the midst of immense trials and tribulation like hey it's going to be fine you know i'm sure that when you were walking through like the death of your husband as a widow at age 26 it was probably hard to consider that sweet sweet little girl was going to be in your arms one day 
I got news for you, man. That girl Willow is something else. She's amazing. But I, I think the reason Paul can say that is because Paul has also been through the ringer. In fact, Paul's been through so much hardship that he has in 2 Corinthians 11. I want to read this to you. 2 Corinthians 11, he has what's called and referred to as the resume of suffering. Anybody ever have one of those? I haven't yet, thankfully. But this is what Paul says. He said, if they're servants of Christ, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, I know, but with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often being left near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, because 40 was deemed the number that would kill a man. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, from my own people, from Gentiles, from the city, from the wilderness, from the sea, from false brothers, I was born into toil and hardship, though many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often I was without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Therefore, if I must boast, it will, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. See, the, the only way that we can boast in weakness, church, is to acknowledge that they make us more like Jesus. That they give us more of a gospel hope. That no, you learn that no matter what you walk through, that God is at the other end of it and he doesn't leave you. And if that means 70 years of exile, to know that God is not going to forsake you in the midst of the 70, and that he is going to be waiting at the end. Paul talks about being stoned, being left for dead. As he was telling people about Jesus in Acts, Acts 14, people are coming, Gentiles and Jews coming to know the Lord and, and give their lives to Jesus over and over and over again. And, and the Jews, the, the, the religious zealots came and, and had Paul stoned, left for dead. And he was in such bad shape that literally what they did, because you can't have someone killed in the city gates, that's preposterous. They literally took his lifeless body and dragged him out of the city out of the city gates and left him outside of the city to die as a heap of trash or a dead animal. You know what Paul does? This is the craziest thing to me. Paul gets up. You know where he goes? Right back in. If that isn't the most ridiculous, tough thing I've ever heard, Paul is beat up by the religious people. They, they literally come and they turn the crowd of people against him and they pick up rocks and anything that's heavy and they throw it at Paul in an effort to kill him and still maintain the city guidelines. They pull him outside. Paul dusts himself up and is like, you know what? I'm good. And goes back into the people who hurt him. 
See, when Paul says he's been hurt, that he has suffered greatly, and then his response on top of all of those things is that he still has great anxiety for the church, what does that tell us? That the, the very people who left him for dead, he says, of all the things I've suffered, he's, I have all of that, and I still have great concern and anxiety for the people who left me for dead outside of the city. And then Paul leaves, and shortly after, comes back a third time. So, so this is how Paul can say, I will all the more gladly boast of my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I'm, I'm content with my weakness, with insults, with hardship, with persecution and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the reason, the reason that Paul does this, the reason he can say that is, is not because he just got better and was okay. It's because he had seen the other side. And so, church, if you are in the midst of struggling and thinking you aren't going to make it out, I want to encourage you that the way to know that you're going to be okay is to understand that you're not alone. And that God has not forsaken you and forgotten you. It's instead that even in the midst of your trial and tribulation and hardship, that God is consistently working and is not done with you yet. I can guarantee you, any of us can go up to Mallory and Leo and say, hey, here's a magic bean. Take it, and everything will go back to before. And I promise nothing bad will happen, and there's no way you'd say yes to that, right? But in the midst of trial and tribulation, when, when you are a widow at 26 and when your marriage is falling apart, when everything is hitting you and is destroying you and someone says, hey, I've got this magic bean, take this and everything will go away. The first thing we do is find water. But that's not what God wants for you. And understanding that is why Paul can say, for these reasons, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. Church, the reason that I push you toward community is because you need it. The reason that I push you toward giving generously is because people need it, because there are stories like this that need to be told. They just need the gospel in them. The reason I push you toward hope is because there are thousands of stories of people right out of those doors that think that they're done with God or that God is done with them and that's not the reality. They're about to be ready to give up on the ending and church, we can't allow that to happen. Not when the gospel exists. Not when the gospel exists. We cannot give up on people when the gospel exists. We cannot stop serving and giving and loving when the gospel exists. We cannot let trial and tribulation and hardship own and destroy our lives when the gospel exists because God is not done with you yet. One of my most favorite things I've ever experienced at this church was just after Christmas last year. And uh, do we have the picture ready to go for that? 
And I saw this pop up on, I think it was Facebook or Instagram. And it was a little girl's notes from church. And if you were to read those notes, you'd, you'd probably mainly miss what the sermon was about that day. <laughs> Giving to help families. But, but you know what I think is really cool is that you would also catch the gospel so clearly. Helping a mother of five. A boy comes to, a boy who comes for Christian, is that what that says? Charleston, there you go, and comes to this church. You know who the boy who comes from Charleston and comes to this church is? It's our now youth pastor, student minister, Mikey Smith. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse a far field and mountain moor, fountain moor. I love this. Poor young family, Jesus. They were so poor they did not have a home, Jesus. And this is beautiful. On a candy cane, the colors represent Jesus. White means Jesus. Red means the death of him. And when you turn it upside down, it's a J for Jesus. And then in the perfect summary of this entire series, of the heart of our church, how old is she? Ten. And the heart of what it is, the church is a place for everyone. I want to read to you the story about calamity that followed with this picture. One of the hardest parts about moving four months ago was leaving the church we had grown to love. We couldn't justify driving an hour each way, so we decided to try and find a new one closer to our house. This was so hard. We visited close to 20 churches during this time, and nothing seemed to fit. We even got to a point we thought our best option would be just to do our own church at home. Well, we decided to give one more church a try, and wouldn't you know, God really does have a plan church is within walking distance. It speaks to both Leo and I and even helped my sweet Lily to be more in tune with the whole purpose of church. We knew at the end of the day we would fill our souls with the word. However, we needed to, but for the last few weeks of trying out this church, we know it's where the Lord wants us to be and it feels so good. And today, Lily decided to take notes. For the first time ever at a church service, from the announcements to the worship songs and the actual sermon, I'm so proud of her and so blessed to have this new place to call home. Put it back up for me. Hey, Trailside. That's what we're about. The church is a place for everyone. For everyone who's doubting, for everyone who's unsure, for everyone who was raised in church and got hurt by church, for everyone who thinks that what they're going through is bigger than what any person could ever handle, the church is for everyone. And that is what we're about. And my hope, my, my prayer, my, my desire is that you would grab onto that this morning. There are thousands of stories waiting to happen like the five that we've shared with you. And I would love to tell them. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you haven't forgotten us. Thank you that when hardship comes and when immense trial comes, when things seem 
things seem like there is no hope, that you do the exact opposite and you thrust hope into the midst of our, our fear and our failure. Lord, I thank you for stories like Mallory and Leo. That when everything seemed like it was falling apart, that your word instill says, instill, instead said that you are still God. And the deep, beautiful truth of theology about who you are and what you've done, we can know it's going to be fine. Lord, I pray for those people who are in exile, who feel like there's nothing left. I pray for those who are hurting. God, that you'd show yourself to them and that we would know that you have never left us, never forsook us, and that you are walking with us every moment. So God, help us to be vulnerable. Help us to give, to be generous. Help us to love and to serve. Help us to go out from here and take the gospel and watch it dive into the hearts of people who have given up or just about ready to. And we look forward to telling your stories of grace and what you've done and what you're continuing to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.